1: Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Linda House, I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and it's my pleasure to be sitting in for you today. Our regular host, Kim Tebaldo, is off. The Cancer Support Community is a global network of 170 locations, including Cancer Support Community and Gilda's Club centers, as well as a number of hospital and hospital-based care partnerships. Our locations provide free services along with a toll-free helpline, digital services, educational materials, which accumulate to about $50 million in free support services to patients and families each year. So if you are a patient or a family listening in to our show today, I really encourage you to take advantage of all of the free services uh, available to you. So today, as a part of our special series, Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer, and again, I will encourage you to go back and take a listen to any of the series that you may have missed, we're going to talk today about a subject that I think is extremely important, and over the course of time has really suffered tremendous misunderstanding, and that topic is clinical trials. And we're going to have that discussion with a specific focus on metastatic breast cancer, but I'll just share that I think this is really relevant to all patients who are, uh, who are experiencing a cancer journey and may be curious about clinical trials. So there is some debate, but however you look at it, really only about 3 to 8% of adult patients who are diagnosed with cancer end up participating in clinical trials. And even more concerning is that even with that small number of patients, there's around 50% of those who do participate that end up dropping out for some reason. And we really want to you know, understand this process a little better and figure out ways in which we might be able to... You know, shift those numbers, get more people into trials, and keep more people uh, in, in, in trials. And we have an expert who's going to help us really understand that um, Dr. Vered Stearns, who is the co director of breast and ovarian cancer program, professor of oncology and Breast Cancer Research Chair in Oncology at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Stern's long-term research goal is to improve current therapies by individualizing strategies for the treatment and prevention of breast cancer. Her main research includes using biomarkers, and we've talked about biomarkers many times on the show, so Dr. Stern's is actually really working hard in that particular area. Um, But her research includes using biomarkers to predict response to standard regimens, used to treat and prevent breast cancer, and also to introduce new treatments. Dr. Stearns has received numerous grants and awards to fund her innovative research. She was a recipient of an Early Career Award, including Clinical Research Training Grant from the American Cancer Society, and was one of the first five recipients of the prestigious Damon Runyon Clinical Investigator Award. And she was the inaugural recipient of the American Society of Clinical Oncology's Advanced Clinical Research Award. So that's a mouthful, but you know, all in all, Dr. Stearns, thank you for being with us and for sharing all of your expertise with us today on the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me and for this very kind introduction.
1: So let's just jump in with with some of our questions. And you know, while it's true that some people are diagnosed with breast cancer as their initial diagnosis, there is a significant percentage of patients who are diagnosed. Um, with a recurrence they may have been initially diagnosed with an earlier stage disease and, and, and now they have a recurrence but regardless of the case when somebody has a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer you know that can be a little you know a little or a lot frightening so you know how do you approach this with your with your patients as they enter their journey with metastatic breast cancer
2: As you noted, uh, many women are diagnosed with an early breast cancer and some of them could have a recurrence months or years or even decades later. And some women at the time of diagnosis already have metastatic disease. Um, And as you also mentioned, this is very frightening because when you read a little bit about it, what you're going to find is that for the most part, it's not something that's easy or um, that we're able to cure. What I try very hard to tell women and their loved ones when I see them in this first initial consult is that there are no two stories that are alike, that uh, having a metastatic breast cancer is a spectrum of many situations, and it's very important to figure out what's the right approach and strategy for that individual person. Um, So we go through uh, several uh, factors that would help us predict uh, what treatment would be helpful and how long one might leave with that cancer, which, again, could be years uh, or even a decade or more. Uh, So uh, it's very important to put this all in perspective on the first visit and also to tell the patient this this is something we're going to to revisit. We're going to select the best possible initial treatment and then two or three months later figure out if this treatment is working, how well it's working, and this will help us refine further uh, what the expectations are.
1: And and so to, to to also continue the idea of putting things in a perspective, you know, what role have have clinical trials played in these improved outcomes?
2: Uh, clinical trials uh, have been essential for us to define today's treatment. Uh, so this is something I tell our patients uh, that if we didn't do clinical trials, we wouldn't have today's powerful treatments. Um, so in every stage, when a patient has to consider a treatment, I would always ask, is there a clinical trial uh, that you could participate in? Um, And we can talk a little bit more about different types of clinical trials, Uh, but uh, again, knowing what is the standard approach uh, for me right now or what would the majority of oncologists recommend? Sometimes there's more than one approach and then are there clinical trials and what is the question the clinical trial I'm considering is asking.
1: Mm -hmm. And so just to help our listeners step back, and so if if we have listeners today who have breast cancer, explain to them the difference between metastatic breast cancer or other breast cancers, and we're going to sort of work through the process of helping them to determine at least what their profile is um, so that they can think about having conversations with their physician about a clinical trial for
2: their particular case. So, when we consider the stage of breast cancer, we look at three different things. One is the size of the tumor within the breast. That's what's called a T-size. If there's more than one tumor in the breast, we don't add them up. We just use the largest um, uh, tumor size. And then we look to see whether any lymph nodes are involved with cancer and how many lymph nodes. That's the N or the node stage. And then whether there's any spread of cancer cells beyond the breast and lymph node area and that's an M or a metastatic stage and that's simply divided to M0 if there's no sites beyond the breast and lymph node or M1 if there is evidence of cancer beyond those areas. Um, And clinical trials are definitely, uh, for the most part, targeting patients with specific um, stages of the disease and
1: so what you just described is what we hear a lot as the TNM staging method, right? Tumor and for lymph nodes, like you said, and M for metastasis. So w- for our listeners, if they are M if they are if they are M positive, that is what helps them understand if they have metastatic
2: breast cancer or not. That's is that correct. accurate? That's okay. accurate, and then uh, there are many uh, T and N combinations, um, which uh, can be summarized then as stage 1, 2, and 3, and that's based on the tumor size and the nodal status and the number of lymph nodes, but then anyone who has evidence of metastasis will be qualified as stage 4. Okay,
1: so so for those that are listening, the the M the M piece of that, and you, and you can ask your doctor where you fall in that in that ranking is is going to be important. And so, talk to us about some of the other factors. You know, we hear a lot about um, hormone receptors, her two, you know, her two ER, PR, those sort of things. How is, can you explain those to our listeners?
2: Yes. In addition to having the stage of the cancer, uh, what we call subtype, what the cancer might look like under the microscope or with special um, stains of tumor cells, helps us further uh, define the tumor and help us select the right treatment for the right person. Um, and uh, for the most part, there's three uh, kind of larger categories, and there are smaller uh, categories within these. Uh, the main categories are having uh, cancer with hormone receptors on the cancer cells, and those are estrogen and progesterone receptor. And about two-thirds of breast cancer will have the estrogen and progesterone receptor on the cells. Um, and that tells us that those are cancer that may be fed by estrogen, but like they are fed by estrogen by depriving estrogen from the cells using hormonal treatment or manipulations, we can starve the cells of estrogen, and this helps uh, keep cancer uh, in check or eliminate some cancer cells. So, that's the first largest subtypes, hormone receptor positive. Um, a second subtype is called HER2 positive. Uh, the cancers that have the HER2 receptors on it um, have signals for growth through factors we don't really understand very well, but... Those can be um, faster-growing cancers. They can have the estrogen receptor. Uh, Some don't have the estrogen receptor. Um, And those cancers will be treated usually with combination of different treatment. But today, for the most part, um, patients will be recommended some sort of medications that target the HER2 or anti-HER2 therapies. And we have some very, very powerful medications here Many times they will be combined with chemotherapy or hormone pills, but uh, the anti her therapies a very integral part of this treatment. And then a third category has been called triple negative breast cancer commonly. Those are cancers that don't have the estrogen, progesterone, or the HER2 receptors on the cells. Um, and biologically, uh, today the main treatment approach for those patients are is chemotherapy. So it's chemotherapy-based. There are some exciting new treatments that we can talk a little bit about later um, that seem to be uh, working in some of those patients. And as I said, within each of those three main categories, there are smaller groups and we're just starting to understand a little bit better how to uh, qualify them or treat them differently in the future. Okay. And then one final question,
1: biomarkers. You know, you you talked a little bit about her too. Would you consider that a biomarker? Are there any other biomarkers that our listeners should be aware of?
2: So biomarkers are basically substances that can be either on the tumor cells, but they can also be on normal cells, and they can also be in blood or in other bodily fluids like urine or saliva. Uh, So it's a very, very general term. Um... Estrogen receptor, HER2 receptor, yes, those are biomarkers. Those are common biomarkers that just about every breast cancer is going to be evaluated for. Other biomarkers may be uh, genetic signatures, protein signatures. It could be um, an image, um, uh, for example, a sophisticated MRI type um, imaging. A lot of those are still um, under research, but uh, the, uh, the use of biomarker is a very uh, broad use uh, of uh, many potential uh, substances that can be measured in different ways. Okay, great. And we are going to
1: go to a, a quick commercial break, but I just want to summarize, and I need you to make sure that I'm getting this right. So for our listeners, the takeaway is there are many different types of breast cancer. So breast cancer is not breast cancer is not breast cancer. You've mentioned that even the method of staging, the TNM method of staging, has different combinations. There's different combinations around these Um, hormone receptors, positive and negative, and one could be positive and one could be negative. They could all be negative, that sort of thing. Um, And then all of the different biomarkers, including the ones that are under clinical investigation. So, you know, before we really go further into the the next segment, um, it's important for our listeners to understand that they and their cancer are physiologically unique and that's probably the most important thing to do is understand what their particular profile is, um, in order to
2: have conversations with their healthcare team. Did I summarize that right? Yes, that was an excellent summary. And the main message, as you stated it, is that every story is different. Every patient is unique, and it's very important um, to understand um, this is me as a patient. This is what my tumor looks like. What do I expect in in treatment, uh, approaches, life expectancy, and so on um, for me as an individual?
1: Yeah, perfect. So on that note, we are going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation moving into clinical trials with Dr. Stearns. The Cancer Support Community is proud to create and bring you this important series on metastatic breast cancer, and we appreciate Lily Oncology for providing the educational grant to allow us to do so. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We'll be right back with more after the break.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Effective
0: cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed
4: Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit mealtrain.com/mmt and enter the code Magnolia B, or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org.
0: You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Linda House and I'm lucky to be sitting in for your regular host, Kim Tibaldo, who is away. And our show today is focused on clinical trials in metastatic breast cancer, and we have such a wonderful guest with us today who is helping us take a deep dive first into the disease itself and now into the important topic around clinical trials. Dr. Stern is co-director of the Breast and Ovarian Cancer Program and professor of oncology as well as breast cancer research chair in oncology at the John Hopkins School of Medicine, Dr. Stearns is also um, a person who serves in a number of leadership roles, which includes the editorial board member of Clinical Cancer Research in Breast Cancer Research and Treatment and Oncology, a number of peer-reviewed, well-known clinical journals. And Dr. Stearns, thank you so much for helping us really level set about the disease and the level of specificity and unique nature of, of breast cancer. Let's now talk about um, clinical trials. And once a patient really, you know, knows what their disease is, you know, when is the best time for them to consider participating in a clinical trial? You know, when should those conversations begin?
2: I think it's important for patients to know that there are many different types of clinical trials, and those are available through the continuum of care. So there's clinical trials available to almost. Uh, every woman with every stage of the disease and when there's new treatments being considered. Um, for more specifically, women, women with metastatic breast cancer, um, as you mentioned earlier, this is a very frightening time and it's, and women want to start their next treatment uh, or new treatment as soon as possible. Uh, but I always tell women, this is a time to pause for a minute and consider your options. What is the standard treatment or treatment approaches recommended to you by our oncologist? Are there other potentially uh, new clinical trials available uh, in your community or beyond? And I think a lot of this also depends on the type and stage of breast cancer. So if you have metastatic breast cancer that's uh, hormone receptor positive and um, maybe there's uh, very few spots of the metastatic disease um, we expect you to do very well with hormonal therapies for many years, um, so maybe there's not it's not the best time uh, to look into clinical trials, but uh, on the other hand, we do know that most treatments will work for a period of time and then will quit working, so if you want to try and figure out, is there something that could make my treatment work longer or better, um, there may be a clinical trial for you, um, so I want people to consider a clinical trial when there is a decision point. uh, You have to start a new treatment. What is my standard approach and what is potentially a clinical trial available to me? And a clinical trial might not necessarily include something new or different. It may be um, simply looking at a biomarker, as we talked about, what makes it that some people respond to a treatment and some people do not. Um, Some... Trials have only questionnaires to assess quality of life, for example. Um, So I would ask continuously, is there a clinical trial for me?
1: And is there a way, because I know, you know, some of the controversy around clinical trials is that not every trial, there are so many trials that are open and available to people and not every care site or every physician has access to every trial, right? Um, Because it would be... you know, it wouldn't be feasible. So what is the best way for our listeners to think about and sort of be proactive in looking for trials that might be um, available to them, even if it's not with their current care location?
2: I would ask most people to talk to their oncologist first. Most oncologists will know what's available either in the community or what might be exciting beyond the community. Uh, mm-hmm. So, let's start with bringing up the topic and say, uh, what do you, is there a clinical trial do you think I should consider? Um, and open the conversation. Now, if your oncologist is not aware or um, you're not sure that you got a full um, answer, there are, there are ways to search. The mo- most common search engine is uh, uh, clinicaltrials.gov. That's run by uh, the um, uh, NCI. And just about every clinical trial is listed. Now, it it could be very complex to search and overwhelming. So, uh, you know, sometimes having a family member or a friend help is is a little bit better. Uh, You can narrow the search. So, for example, if you say, you know, I'm willing to to travel 50 miles or 100 miles, but not more than that, then you can uh, have um, a radius put in. uh, Or you can say, I want only... Uh, clinical trials related to my specific situation, so let's say stage 4 hormone receptor positive breast cancer, um, so that's one way. You can always get a list and talk to your oncologist about his or her thoughts about the specific trials. So, I would start with that. Um, you can go to the nearest comprehensive cancer center. Those centers would usually have many clinical trials, but also uh, will be able to connect you with other uh, centers that may have clinical trials for you. I always try, if my patients ask me about trials, and I know I don't have something specific for them, I will reach to other oncologists in other centers that may be not too far away uh, from our center and ask, is there a trial uh, that my patient might want to consider? Great. And so, to this
1: point, I, I want to, you know, just in the way that we step, we took a step back and really sort of helped our listeners understand the disease of breast cancer, let's take a step back and help them understand the differences in clinical trials, you know, and and as we've heard on the news and, you know, through our friends and others, there are many different stages of clinical trials, so could you just step back and and explain what happens, you know, what does preclinical mean, what does phase one mean, just walk us through that.
2: So, most studies start in the laboratory, so studies start in a laboratory as are called preclinical studies. They may have uh, investigations of new drugs or combinations uh, just in dishes that have cancer cells in them or in animal models. And once you've established that a treatment might be very powerful against breast cancer in general or specific subtype of breast cancer, uh, you want to start studying it in people. And then there are different phases of development. There's a lot of rigorous uh, oversight before you actually can take a drug uh, and provide it to individuals. Some studies will be called phase one first in human. This is the first time you're given a drug to a person. Um, Our drugs today are are more biology-based. They tend to not necessarily have a lot of uh, side effects the same way chemotherapy uh, does, but uh, they may have some unexpected side effects. So you start usually at a very, very low dose. Uh, You give it to one person or three people. There are different ways of doing it. Um, And then if there are no side effects, you start giving a higher dose to the next set of individuals. Um, Phase one studies, for the most part, is when you're trying to either study a new drug or a new combination. So you might be putting drug A and B together. You know how to give A, you know how to give B, but together they may uh, have higher t- certain toxicity, So you might need to scale back on their doses and figure out how to give that together. Uh, or it may be that you're using a standard drug, but you're adding something new. Um, so the reason I'm Telling you those different scenarios is that uh, many times we think of phase one as being uh, new drugs being evaluated, and maybe there will not be benefit to individuals. But there are some studies where, where the backbone uh, is expected to provide benefit to the individual, and then we're trying to add in or change something. Um, so it's very important to know what is the purpose of the phase one study. Um, ask what toxicity do we know about? What are we worrying about? And then, importantly, is this going to benefit me? Um, and for the most part, if there are phase one studies where you do not know if the study will benefit a person, I don't like to recommend it to patients unless they're in a in a in a timeline in their disease that I don't think I have something that's standard or off the shelf that's likely to provide them long-term benefit. So, if we take, again, this woman with hormone receptor positive breast cancer, I'm likely going to be able to give her hormonal combination for a period of time, maybe chemotherapies, and I could treat her for many years, and I expect this to work, so I may not want her to be in a phase one study.
1: Mm-hmm. But if
2: she's been on uh, three or four hormonal therapies, three, four chemotherapies, then Um, I don't expect chemotherapy number five to work, and maybe it's a good time to look at um, something that biologically makes sense and may uh, benefit her. Phase two studies, for the most part, uh, use drugs or combinations where you already know what dose to give, you know what the toxicity, but now you're trying to figure out what's the actual benefit. How many people are going to respond to this treatment or combination and for how long. Uh, So, we kind of think of phase one as more toxicity, dose finding, and then phase two more as efficacy. Now, phase two studies could also be studies when when you're looking at a biomarker imaging study or quality of life that uh, that just means that you include X number of people to study um, a particular question phase three studies are um, are usually the studies that do uh, lead to practice change. So those are studies where you have enough information and you know that uh, a drug or a combination seems to be very very uh, helpful to individuals and might be better than what we're using today. So there has to be enough knowledge that it's relatively safe and maybe better than today's standard. Uh, so it's usually randomized meaning that Uh, Neither the patient nor the doctor is able to select which arm uh, of the study the patient will be enrolled in, and it could be uh, usually one arm will be the standard treatments. It could be combination chemotherapy that we use every day uh, or just one chemotherapy or hormone therapy agent that we use every day, and then the second arm of the study will be adding or modifying or changing something or given something totally different. Um, And then you basically look at the number of cancers that grow uh, eventually on the treatment or a number of deaths due to the cancer, and that helps to determine if the new combination or treatment is better than the standard. And if so, those are the drugs that usually get approved um, and used in standard practices. Uh, There are some Phase four studies, and those are usually studies uh, that include drugs uh, or devices that are already been approved. and now you're just trying to get more information. It may be for specific populations or um, when you have a specific question re- regarding toxicity, for example. um so so those are already marketed drugs or devices that you're using. So that was a lot of information. I'm happy to answer more specific questions.
1: No, and absolutely, we have um, we have a minute till break, so I'm going to try to summarize a, a, a bit, and then I want to start the next segment to give our readers sort of a preview. I want to start the next segment with diving into to some of this information a little bit more, particularly you know some of the challenges of, of clinical trials. So I'll just I'm just going to summarize that preclinical to phase four studies, there is a role for patients who want to participate in trials and would qualify to participate in trials at each of those phases. And even in the preclinical phase, that would be a time that they might want to think about donating their tissue, right? You know, the tissue that had been removed maybe as a part of the surgery or as a part of their biopsy. Um, And then the further you go in the process, the more information that has been collected about a treatment um to to better understand the odds of it working, so, and the appropriate dose um, that would be needed to to have it work. So, you go from preclinical to phase one, phase two, you have even more information, phase three, you have a lot more information, and phase four, you even though there may be enough information to have warranted an FDA approval of the treatment, there still is some additional information, you know, likely around toxicities um, that, that they want to, to, to collect to continue to study the drug. That was an excellent summary, yes. Great. I just want to make sure, as people are reading this terminology, they they understand it. So we have got to go to a commercial break, and then we will continue um, our this series, on Spotlight on Metastatic Breast Cancer. And again, we appreciate Lily Oncology for allowing us to to do so. And we will be right back with Dr. Stearns after this commercial break.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. More can be done for the mothers, daughters, sisters, wives, and partners facing the unique challenges of this advanced disease. And every moment counts. While there has been progress made over the last few years in distinguishing MBC and bringing forward new treatment options, there is still more to be done to truly support the women and men living with this disease every day so they can continue to be there for family and friends. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease Because together, we know we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly and Company.
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing how to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community.
1: Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are so fortunate to have with us today Dr. Vared Stearns from the John Hopkins School of Medicine. And we've had, I think, a great conversation about metastatic breast cancer and um, defining better the phases of clinical trials. And Dr. Stearns, I um, want to just dig a little bit deeper into the clinical trials process. And I'm wondering... um, i'm I'm wondering what you hear from patients about why they may or may not participate, But you know before we go to that, could we just um, could we just continue the conversation that we had before the break? And you know we we you gave a lot of information, and I would really encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that information again, because I think it's critically important that people understand sort of where in the clinical trials or drug development process. Um or device development process, they're participating. And could you speak a little bit about the information that they should expect to receive and different processes like consent forms and
2: things they should expect to,
1: to be a part of?
2: The different ways that patients might be approached about clinical trials. And again, in some situations, the patient starts the conversation. And So for the most part, it will start by the uh, providers, the physician, the nurse that the patient works with that would say, this is the treatment course I would recommend for you, but there's also a clinical trial that I think you should consider. Um, The doctor or the nurse will open the door and give a little bit of a summary, and then if the patient um, is interested in hearing more, usually we will have uh, the patient meet with either a research nurse or a study coordinator where can go over more details associated with the study. What does it mean to me? Uh, because it's, it may be a treatment that's attractive for you, but it may also demand a lot of your time. Uh, some some studies require multiple visits uh, or extra tests, so it's very important for individuals to ask specifically how is it going to be different for me to be on a study than on a different um, medication and weigh the pros and cons for them uh, personally, uh, we usually, what we try to do, at least in our centers, we have kind of a one-page summary, so this is kind of big picture, and then if patients are interested, then we give them what's called a consent form, and that's very detailed information. A lot of the language in it um, is required template uh, language to make sure that um truly understand why the research is being done and then there's always some insurance and legal uh, and financial related um, uh, uh, paragraphs uh, but the key is that this document has uh, every detail about the study and we encourage people to take it to read it to ask questions share it with others and be sure they're comfortable with the study before signing this document and taking it forward And then, for the most part, uh, patients can take their time in making a decision, um, and rarely there are more urgent uh, needs to make a quick decision.
1: Great. And and I just want to sort of highlight the the reason that that patients will see informed consent at the top of that document is because the expectation is is that they are informed. So to your point, they should take their time and, and read and ask questions. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's go back to the, the number that we talked about earlier, um, you know, in the 3 to 8% of patients who um, go into clinical trials. You know, when you, when you hear from patients, you know, why, why do you hear that they choose to go into a trial? Why do you hear that they choose to not go into a trial? What are the,
2: some of the things that you hear on the front lines? Um, so the number you quoted, 3 uh, to 8%, is the number of percent of patients nationally who go on clinical trials um, in some of the larger centers, you do see um, higher numbers. I think in our group, uh, about 20% of our patients do enter uh, a clinical trial. Um, so some when we do introduce a clinical trial when available to a patient, uh, I would say for the most part, patients will consider it, weigh in, the pros and the cons, and uh, if they elect not to go on it, sometimes it is uh, a time commitment or a financial concern. Uh, or worrying about a potential um, t- toxicity that's not yet well defined, uh, there may be geographic reasons. So th- there are a lot of potential reasons why one might not choose not to go on a trial. But it doesn't mean that three months, six months, two years later, uh, they will not consider a different trial. So I would, uh, this is something that I bring routinely in discussions with patients. Great, and then. Um
1: you know, the last question I want to ask about your process, and then I want to learn a little bit more about you as well, but, um, you know, what process do you use when you are thinking about whether a patient is appropriate for a clinical trial?
2: We have uh, several things that we have done over the years, and we continue to refine the process that we're always always, uh, happy to hear um, about other successful experiences. Um, Our group is Screening every new patient we see. So, when a new patient makes an appointment, one of our research coordinators or nurses will look at her summary of her cancer and some demographics and will tell the physician or the nurse practitioners uh, that the patient may be eligible for a study or sometimes more than one study. Um, and then, when the doctor or nurse will be seeing and evaluating the patient, and get to the information about treatment. Um, we'll pull this document and say, well, this is the standard treatment and this is a study that you might be interested in, give a little summary, and again, start this dialogue. And what we do is we also collect information, and we may not have it that same day, but maybe a week or two or a month later, saying um, this patient is interested in the study or this patient is not interested in the study or not eligible, for example, um, There'll there be certain things in the record suggesting that a patient might be eligible, but when you talk to her, you find out of a new comorbidity or a problem that makes her ineligible, or she might not be uh, able to participate due to geographical or other reasons. But that's our process, and we're trying to track and um, help um, as we, and this information helps us as we consider a new studies. We want to eventually be able to offer a clinical trial for almost every person with the goal of improving our standard treatments and uh, quality of life and other um, outcomes. Uh, And then if the patient is already um, an existing patient in the process, we have a general um, uh, email address to our research team when I might say, uh, I have a patient I'm seeing in clinic next week who is saying cancer is growing on the current treatment, what studies and what might we have for her, um, and then, again, a study team member will screen the patient and let me know what studies she might be eligible for, and I will approach her about this possibilities. Uh, every so often, a patient might ask me about studies in other places, and I usually reach to other breast cancer specialists uh, in nearby institutions to start with, or institutions where she might be interested in going, and ask about potential studies so let's there's there's one piece about the
1: clinical trials uh process that we really haven't touched on at all and that is around cost and the financial Mm -hmm. aspect of it so um can you talk a little bit about your experience with that do insurance plans primarily pay for for that is that an out-of-pocket cost is it you know drug donated by the company just speak a little bit about that for us
2: so uh, I think that this, this is something that's done differently in different institutions. so I can tell you what we do around here and what we expect, uh, but those are important questions to ask. Um, what we do here is when before we even submit a study uh, to our regulatory committees, uh, we put together a document that outlines what will be charged for the insurance and what will be charged for the study. So anything that would be a standard uh, of care, for a person getting treatment for cancer will go to the insurance. So for example, uh, if you have regular doctor visits, blood tests, um, CAT scans, um, this will go to your insurance. Um, anything extra, let's say that this, the in the study you're looking at a specific uh, biomarker or a specimen that you need and you need to collect it, this will be charged to the uh, to the sponsor of the study. Um, if the study includes treat, a particular treatment or medication, if it's a standard medication that you're adding on or revising, the standard medication may be charged to your insurance, but the new medication should be provided to you free of charge. I think other things that you need to ask as a patient is, well, will I have extra visits? If, if I have a copay, you know what happens to that? Other things that people are not aware is some studies will will build, we'll build in some travel uh, costs and so on, again, for those potentially extra visits. So making sure you know what goes to your insurance um, and what will be charged to uh, the sponsor and what might be out-of-pocket for you are important. Um, we do something called insurance clearance before we enroll any patient in a treatment study, meaning we make sure that the insurance company um, approved that the patient will go on a study and they know what they're going to be paying. Great. So, um, you know, again, just to summarize,
1: it just goes back to patients being informed, and that would be a reasonable question to ask ahead of time as well.
2: It's a very important question to ask, yes. Yes. Okay, great.
1: So before we go to a commercial break, I'd like to know a little bit more about you. And I understand that you were inspired at a very young age to become a doctor, but specifically an oncologist. Can you share what really inspired you to, to take this journey?
2: Oh, thank you for the question. So I think this is a very different time when we didn't have as many treatment and most of the cancer-related uh, um, approaches, treatment, or managing symptoms were done in a hospital. So I just have a recollection of being In hospitals, long days when my grandfather was very ill and just being so impressed with the doctors and the teams and how, you know, taking care of him. And I was also, as I grew up, intrigued by um, genetics and molecular biology, and uh, that kind of pulled me even closer to oncology. What I like the most as a clinician, as an oncologist, is that... You are subspecialized, but you become the primary care doctor for that patient and the family. You, clo- you, you form very, very close relationships, and this was something that was very important to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you found that play out in your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah you, you, we, we form very, very close relationships with our patients, with our family members that are long-lasting. Yeah, and we're going to pick up on that right after the
1: break as well, because I want to hear more about that. Um, we have to take a quick commercial break, and we will be back with Dr. Stearns following um, just a few moments.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: At Lilly Oncology, we know people living with metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, deserve more. There has been progress made over the last few years in bringing forward new treatment options, but there is still more to be done. Lilly Oncology is focused on raising more awareness through education, more research, and more dedicated solutions to help empower people living with this disease. Because together, we can do more for MBC. This content is selected by the Cancer Support Community and is funded in part by Eli Lilly & Company.
0: Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed the cancer support community is ready to help by providing free counseling education and hope for survivors and their caregivers whether online or at over one hundred locations around the world
1: to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and today's episode is a part of our special series on the spotlight of metastatic breast cancer, so I'd love for you to um, take a minute and go back and and listen to some of the the others. They have had a lot of really good information, and I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we've been having an in-depth conversation with Dr. Stearns about um, clinical trials and metastatic breast cancer. And as we were uh, talking or going to break, Dr. Stearns, you had mentioned um, your inspiration to become a medical oncologist, not and primarily because of, of your experience in the past and your ability to really form tight relationships with your patients, and um, I would just like for you to spend another second to to, to just talk about that experience a little bit more and um, what what patients who you know might be new in this journey might expect um, from their relationship with their with their medical oncologist.
2: So uh, as we talked about early in this conversation, having a diagnosis of cancer is quite frightening, especially a more advanced cancer. And you want to make sure that you're comfortable with the people who are going to be taking care of you, that you're able to form a good report with your oncologist. It could be the best oncologist in the world on paper. If you're not going to be able to connect to this physician, ask questions, get answers, you may not be the right person for you. So I think it's really important to evaluate um, your needs and ability of your oncologist to meet your personal needs, and true for family members too. You want to feel comfortable asking questions and being part of the conversation. Um, and it's beyond the doctor because if you are going to get long-term treatment for cancer, you're going to meet nurse practitioners or phys- physician assistants and treatment nurses and um, uh, and clinical technicians and phlebotomists, people taking bloods and people uh, getting extra. So you're going to be meeting lots of people from the healthcare team. So you want to be in a place where you feel comfortable, that you feel like you're uh, in good hands, that people listen to you and are kind to you. And and a part of that may be going for a
1: second opinion if you're not if you're not particularly comfortable. But I think you know in my experience, um, exactly what you said that you derive from your patients and and that close relationship. A number of, of, of oncologists sort of fit into that same bucket. It's a calling, not a job.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's um, you know we um, we we get. Close and attached to our patients, and when they're distressed, we're distressed. We want to do better for them and for other people. It's a, definitely a close, important relationship that we develop.
1: Yes, I agree. Um, and to sort of to sort of shift, um, although not because it really talks about the network that you as physicians have uh, have together. You recently attended the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in uh, in December and I know that's a, a large medical meeting where researchers, scientists, advocates, other, you know, multidisciplinary stakeholders come together and really talk about what you're learning in breast cancer. And so I'm wondering if there were any major takeaways for you from this year's conference.
2: And the major takeaway from this and other recent conferences is there are new things happening and coming our way every day. Uh, there are new treatments we've already incorporated in our practices that uh, we're going to be using differently or in earlier stages. One big study looked at people who received chemotherapy and anti-HER2 therapy before surgery and tell us that if there's uh, some cancer left at the time of surgery, you can give another anti-HER2 treatment and you can prevent more cancers from recurring. Um, other studies tell us that immunotherapy may have a role in the more triple negative breast cancer. Um, and then many studies um, show us the power of technology in, and how that's going to help us assess multiple genes or gene products in people and to select the right treatments for them in the future. So a lot of exciting things. Um, either treatments or technologies or markers coming our way. I love that.
1: So you you're really talking about the whole spectrum of the experience. So identifying risk for breast cancer, identifying which treatments what might work best for your particular type of cancer and then, you know, how and what those treatments would
2: be. It's really the whole spectrum. Absolutely. And and uh, on, on the other side, we, we, we talked a lot about adding treatment, revising treatment, but we know that especially in some of the earlier stages of cancer, sometimes we treat more people that need to be treated. So how do we use these sophisticated technologies to tell us who needs treatment and who, who does not? Uh, and that's more true of risk and um, assessment, prevention, and early treatment. And then metastatic um, cancer, how do we sequence this treatment? When do we think of, of new, out-of-the-box uh, solutions for patients?
1: Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, and then, as, as it relates to ongoing clinical trials, so I know that there was a lot of reporting out of results of, of clinical trials, but were there any other you know, specific clinical trials that, that caught your attention or that, that you thought, oh, I'd like to, I'd like to participate um, or get a, get a hold of these for my patients?
2: So I think the, the the things that I've been more interested in, and you as you mentioned early on, I've been very interested in using biomarkers to help select the right treatment for the right patient. So there's a lot of interest in what's called circulating DNA. So we know that the tumor cells uh, shed very uh, small amounts of DNA into the blood, and you can actually measure um, mutations of cancer-related genes in those mutations and I'm trying to figure out across the continuum of breast cancer how to use the sophisticated technologies to determine who needs treatment and what treatment, and maybe to help guide what clinical trials will be most, most valuable for that treatment. So it's not exactly a treatment study, but I think it's a technology that would help us refine our treatment.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And. If I'm not mistaken, the the buzzword that our listeners might be hearing around that is um, liquid biopsy. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, the liquid biopsies. Okay, and and it just means drawing the blood and being able to learn more about their cancer through the blood the blood specimen because of the circulating DNA.
2: Right. We talked about yeah. some of the common markers like estrogen receptor and HER2 receptor, and one of the challenges we have when a person has metastatic or advanced cancer is that. The tumor site may be in areas like liver and bone that we could do biopsies, but it will be very hard to do uh, repeated biopsies many times. So we think that this liquid biopsy will provide a more powerful tool by maybe pulling this um, genetic information from multiple metastatic sites and maybe helping us uh, move beyond specific biopsies of those areas. Those are still under studies, but I think the excitement uh, is there. Great. Before we close out the show, I'm going to give you the last
1: word. And, you know, we've covered so much here today, and I think we've really covered a lot of the spectrum. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the amount of, of information we've been able to get in in the short period of time. Is there anything that we've forgotten, or is there anything that you want to make sure that our
2: listeners know? Thank you again for the opportunity to discuss this very important topic. I think that breast cancer is, unfortunately, a relatively common cancer, and the majority of women uh, may receive treatment for an early breast cancer and will do well long-term, but there are many women who will have a recurrence and will live with breast cancer. Uh, And I think the two messages that I'd like to highlight, again, are, number one, every story is different, every person is unique, um, you're always going to hear other stories, but you want to get the information from your care team. What am I going to expect? Um, and number two, that uh, the majority of women can live with this um, disease for years, a decade, or more. Um, so, again, um, remain optimistic, look for treatment approaches, uh, but know the limitation of some of our treatments in our knowledge today.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show and really helping our listeners understand um, all of the spectrum, not just not just clinical trials. And um, I hope that you'll come back someday and keep us updated on, on the latest developments and, and keep us up to date as your work advances.
2: Thank you again. And I'll be happy to join you again in the future.
1: Great. Thank you. The Cancer Support Community is proud to create and bring you this important series on metastatic breast cancer and really appreciates Lilly Oncology for providing the educational grant to allow us to do so. And again, I would encourage you to go back and take a listen to some of the other topics, which have included um, estate planning, um, creating wills, survivorship, living well, managing side effects. So there's a a lot of good information in this series, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. It has sure been my pleasure to be here with you today. I am the president of the Cancer Support Community, and every once in a while I get to uh, take advantage of Kim being out of the office to co-host this amazing radio show. As I mentioned earlier in the show, the uh, Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. For more information about our programs or how to reach Dr. Stern's office, um, please visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at 888-793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, live well.